0: This is Jennifer Stock, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. And on this show, I host experts in the field that bring us news about the ocean. This blue planet controls our climate and weather, it provides food and recreation, and provides a home to so many plants and animals. I bring the show to you from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, which is just off the Point Reyes National Seashore coastline north of San Francisco. And... Um, If you want to hear past episodes of Ocean Currents, please visit cordellbank.noaa.gov, C-O-R-D-E-L-L-B-A-N-K dot N-O-A-A We have past episodes, and you can subscribe to a podcast on that website. So today, today, this time of year on the California coast, we notice a shift in the weather on land and on the water for... Ocean lovers, it can be a cause for celebration because the food web starts to take off, or it can be a curse if you actually want to be on the water. The winds that barrel down the coast this time of year are one of the drivers of the food web on the California coast. And you know it's upwelling season when you're at the beach and your hat is 50 feet further down the beach. You've got sand in your ears, your eyes, your nose, and at the edges of your binoculars. Sometimes by the wind sailors, an offshore jelly with a little blue sail will wash ashore, and that signals that something is happening. Something is happening, and it's amazing what scientists are learning through ocean technology and modeling. Today I'm talking with Dr. John Largier, an oceanog- oceanographer who is a professor in coastal oceanography at UC Davis at BML, Bodega Marine Lab. We'll be talking about all the forces that shape this productive region when we come back. Stay tuned. John, are you on the air with us?
1: Yes, I'm here. Oh,
0: welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Um, just to give some background on John, John has a Ph.D. in oceanography from the University of Cape Town, South Africa. John's research, research is in coastal oceanography and ecology, specifically field-based study of water motion and the transport of waterborne material. John's interest... In the environmental and ecological issues include larval juvenile dispersal, coastal water quality such as beach pollution, and primary productivity, including harmful algal blooms. John's long-term goal is to better understand the coastal ocean systems to obtain an integrated view of how the diverse components, processes, and scales fit together. We are very lucky to have you on the show today, John. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, can we just maybe set the scene first, and can you start by just describing what the different oceanographic seasons throughout the year are like here off the coastline?
1: Right. Well, you just described uh, probably the characteristic season, the upwelling season, and um, a blessing and sometimes seems like a curse as well. Um, Very similar seasons are seen elsewhere in South America and Southern Africa and Northern Africa. At the same latitude in the west side of continents, um, all of these places have these <coughs> upwelling seasons. But it's part of a, of a rhythm of the year. So we know around about now, March or April, the winds turn, become strong north, <coughs> and the cold water upwells. But come uh, late summer and getting into fall, when the weather gets nice here, the ocean gets calmer as well. A long fall season or fall transition, really. Warm, warmer weather, warmer water, and quieter winds. Uh, best time on the coast for humans, at least. And then probably a third season, of course, is the winter or storm season, when it tend to get the west leaves come through and the rain, and a lot of runoff from the land, and that sort of dominates that season. And then a very, getting back to the upwelling, quite a sudden spring transition where things may change almost from one week to the next, from a winter to a to a spring or upwelling uh, season. So really three seasons in the ocean is what we see.
0: And do you think, do you feel locally recently that the thing we've transitioned, I've noticed the, this wind we've had in the last week, and it just seems very strong. Um, do you think this is the beginning of the upwelling season?
1: Sure feels like it. Um, yeah, even a few ba- weeks back, really, it seems quite early this year. In in the ocean, what we notice, and we don't have uh, online data um, so we look sort of retrospectively. The bottom water down at depth at 100 meters or so um, gets cold, suddenly gets colder than it was and stays colder. So, well, you'll get these pulses of wind. There's a certain change that happens deeper down on, over the continental shelf where the cold, really deep, um, high-nutrient water will get onto the shelf. And that really marks the spring transition. And this uh, shelf of Northern California has been studied probably really intensively now for probably about a quarter of a century, since the 80s. And we have the spring transition. In some years happen as early as late February, and other years happens as late as May. But typically in this March, uh, early April period, we start seeing that. And that's the high-nutrient water Then, of course, fuels the system.
0: So what are some of the factors that really change that year-to-year? And What really is the first thing that really triggers this the system from going?
1: Well, that's a good question. Um, the, the most obvious change is, is the El Nino cycle that we've uh, we've come to know pretty well in the last 10 or 20 years. So in, in 1998, for example, was, was El Nino, and, uh, and then people came up with the word La Nina um, being the alternative period, which 1999 was, very strong, upwelling winds. And uh, but those really refer to the the season as a whole and the exact timing of when it starts is is not that well known. And we we really learned that uh, last year, but also particularly in 2005, when the upwelling seemed to start in April, and then in May it was gone. And we had a lot of birds and fish which went hungry that year. Actually, the uh, Cassins' Auckland didn't even have one chick, I think, in 35 years of monitoring on Farrellands Island. It's the first time that's happened. So that was not an El Nino year. It was um, the, the atmospheric pressure system in the northern Pacific. Exactly why switch to upwelling winds off for six weeks is not completely clear. And this is all what I, I think of it as the rhythms of the ocean. And there's not just the one 12 month you know, seasonal cycle, but there are these, uh, what we know very well living on the coast. Uh, there's sort of one week almost cycle of um, what we call synoptic variability. The wind blows for three, four days and stops for a day or two, and blows for five days and stops for half a day. That's another rhythm that we get, and then and then there there are other ones which we're not we're still learning about, which might be twenty or fifty days long. And uh, I would say we don't fully understand those.
0: That's what's so amazing is it's constantly changing science, and everybody wants to know everything, but we really don't know. Um, can you talk a little bit about one of the variables? The I've um, the, heard about the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, and is this this is one of the uh, shifts that is fairly normal? And can you just describe what it is and and what shifts between those ten
1: years? Correct. Right. So the. the um As we study the ocean more, we're starting to, and and for a longer period, we're starting to realize, of course, that there are longer rhythms as well. Um, You know, go way back to the Greeks, and we knew about tidal cycles and um, day-night cycles, and and our science came to understand the wind cycles and, and the seasons. But now as we start collecting longer records, we learn what a lot of People, I think, have known maybe in more traditional knowledge systems is that there are these long period cycles. So we have the El Nino, that some, you know, every several years there's, in Peru, there are more fish, and every other few years there are less fish. And now we're getting a lot, we're seeing longer, like the decadal oscillation. There's a the Pacific decadal oscillation, there's an Atlantic decadal oscillation. We're seeing rhythms which are 10 or 20 or 30 years long. Um, so first, um, probably noticed in in the crash of the sardine fisheries and some of the other fisheries in Canary Row back in the 40s and 50s was it was people started calling that a regime shift. And then again in the in the 70s, and we're starting to see this as a you know maybe 10 or 20 years, a decadal pulsing in the whole um, in the North Pacific, but it's really tied into the Earth as a whole, which is which is pulsing and. And breathing—that's probably the best way um, to describe it. There are um, some of these cycles. El Niño has become well described in terms of a pressure gradient across the along the equator between the eastern Pacific and the western Pacific, and that fluctuates. The Pacific Decadal Oscillation is more of a difference between the northeastern Pacific and the, i mean—the northern Pacific and the equatorial Pacific. But the actual mechanism is. Although we recognize it's happening, we're now trying to understand exactly what is the mechanism and what's driving that. Of course, there's all underlying, all of this is is a, a secular trend, an ongoing trend, not a cycle, but the whole climate change idea. very difficult to see through all, this, all these cycles that lie, lie on top of it.
0: So it gets really confusing, like you're saying, the last two years we were seeing um, very low productivity, and, and the food web was responding to that. We had hardly any blue whales here, and we had humpback whales feeding on a lot of fishes. And this year, it's, it, there was some talk that we were seeing El Nino-like conditions, yet it wasn't in an El Nino. But typically, what the El Nino conditions that we would receive up here, you said earlier that they may be very productive waters down in Peru during an El Nino year. And so why why is that? Do they have a different... Um, water mass and down in the down in Peru,
1: as opposed to this one. Right. No. In, in actual fact, it's it's um, they are in sync with us in Peru and that the El Niño is not a good time for them, and um, so there um, so some of these anomalous periods, these unusual periods, are El Niño like because they're warmer than normal. But it, they're not all all of these warm anomalies are not um, all due to the same mechanism. And that's what we're starting to see now. That there are warm periods that maybe are a different mechanism. The classical El Nino really, what happens is all the warm water across at the Philippines and on the on the um, get my my compass right on the west side <laughs> of the uh, Pacific. Suddenly, if you like, slushes across towards the, the, the Americas crashes into it and then goes north and south. That's a very a simple explanation. But we see warm. Tropical water coming up into Southern California, and even sometimes further up towards us, and at the same time going south towards Ecuador and Peru, and um, that's where it actually has a bigger impact there than it does here, but, but quite similar, both both hemispheres.
0: One thing I want to mention is um, we're in the California current ecosystem, and Peru is also in a very special system. These are part of eastern boundary currents. Can you talk a little bit about the significance of eastern boundary currents, where they are, and what are some of the features of them?
1: Right. Yeah. So, um, again, the patterns, yeah, these these uh, upwelling seasons, and then they happen in special places in the world, the eastern boundary currents. So, it's really the, the best way to describe it is middle latitude. You know, what are we at here around 38 degrees north? So you go to 38 degrees south off the coast of Chile, and you'll get a very similar system where you go to, um, well, you don't get it off southern Africa, but you go to Lisbon, for example, 38 degrees north off the west coast of Europe. And all of these west uh, coasts are subject to what we call equator winds. In other words, in the northern hemisphere, they blow from the north, towards the south and in the southern hemisphere in the other direction Um, and because of the rotation of the earth they all bring about an offshore transport of surface water and so that whole region in our case you know running from in summertime as far north as, as Vancouver Island and in wintertime as far south as Costa Rica or definitely down maybe not that far but definitely down in mainland Mexico is a region of upwelling and um and of, um, fl- of of flowering almost is a word um, used sometimes for it. And it and, um, disperse nutrients over a large area, huge um, eastern boundary current system, hundreds of miles offshore will still be productive and then you'll find the same. Our system is called California of South America. It's typically called the Humboldt system. Sometimes people call it the Peru system. And uh, South Africa, they call it the Benguela system, runs up in Namibia, Angola. And then the Canary system, which runs um, the Canary Islands, but also on the coast of Morocco, Portugal, Spain, and then down south as far as Senegal. So those are the four primary systems. There are a couple of other smaller ones.
0: And I just read, and I want to see if this compares to what you know. It, these four systems they cover less than one thousandth of the world Ocean Service. So oceans' surface. Yet they produce over a third of the world's fish for economic value. Is that sound about right?
1: Um, it, it depends a little bit how you how you count it. As as always, as numbers, isn't it?
0: Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, the the numbers that I normally use is one percent of the ocean surface. So there'd be one hundred. Right. And twenty percent of the fish. Oh, 20. Um, but that's still a pretty um, good factor. Isn't it? A 20 twenty-fold ap- amplification.
0: Wow, so these are the most productive regions. And it's interesting, too, because now that we have all these new ta- technologies and we're tagging animals and finding out where they're going, there's like these bee lines for these productive areas for certain species of birds and, and mammals. So they're telling us something about these areas as well.
1: Yeah, lots of migrants that come in, as you say, birds and, and big fish, tuna and, and whales moving through it. and. Um, it's a it's a sort of a vegetable garden, maybe that people uh, or animals and fish move in and out of, and then of course a whole bunch of species which live their entire lives within it. And they, they, there's some interesting stories there as well, where where they need to time their life cycle, you know, the annual, their, their annual rhythms to the upwelling, because uh, one of the classical things we're trying to understand now with coastal fisheries and uh, the idea of some marine protected areas is uh, how do these coastal populations live in the system when in uh, the upwelling season, if you're a little planktonic, a little drifting lava or, or egg or juvenile fish or something like that, the currents are always offshore. So for some um, uh, species, it's a good time to be in the water column, and other species is not a good time to be in the water column. So thinking your life cycle to the environmental cycle.
0: That's probably why so many of these invertebrates and fishes cast so many eggs and sperm to have as many chances as possible to survive.
1: It sure seems like that. Seeds in the wind. (laughs) Maybe it's, well, you know, how's it evolved? Maybe the best strategy is you just, as you say, create lots and lots and lots of eggs, and some of them come back. But it it seems to be cleverer than that, the
0: system. During some upwelling years, in the past there have been days where it just blows and blows and blows and blows, and... Um, I've heard that when that happens and these surface waters are pushed offshore, a lot of the larvae also get pushed off and can go all the way across the Pacific or, or away from these productive regions. Have you studied much w- about this larval transport that happens during the upwelling?
1: Yeah. So we, um, with, with colleagues, we, that is really a classical or not classical, a, a very contemporary question that we're trying to f- uh, figure out. Uh, try, we concentrate more on the larvae that come back to the coast. So, you know, if a if a uh, parent has uh, a million eggs or something, they can go just about anywhere. And the population as a whole has many, many more than that. Um, but the question is, how do some of them stay here and come back, or go away and come back to the coastline? And there are a whole lot of different strategies there. Um, the it, two of the key ones probably are that. it it doesn't upwell everywhere along the coast, so there there are um, there spatial patterns of capes and bays. For example, the the shoreline in Drake's Bay often does not upwelling as strongly as it is, say, north of Point Reyes along the coast up towards Point Arena, um, or and and then the other um, pattern that's important is 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 this that it, it upwells for a few days and stops and upwells and stops and different organisms figure out different ways of taking advantage of that probably the most interesting is is the uh, primary production so not the larvae but the actual phytoplankton, little drifting plants that suck up the nutrients and they don't have much chance of swimming against currents so they tend to be carried offshore and, but then the wind stops blowing and they tend to come back on shore caught in a in a little eddy behind a, a cape so um, this, again that rhythm is essential to the making systems productive.
0: And so the wind blows for a couple of days and it really is pushing and then it somewhat relaxes a little bit where some of it comes back. How many days does it take for those nutrients that have been brought up from the bottom to the surface waters to help fertilize some of the microscopic uh, phytoplankton in the water? What is that uh, lag time between mm-hmm.
1: the wind? A, yeah, that's really interesting as, as a, the time of upwelling and what what works and what doesn't. So the the upwelling itself takes maybe a day to really get going. But the question is, that's yes, upwelling water from a depth of 10, 20, 50 meters, and is that water full of nutrients or not? So you will have upwelling along some coasts of the, uh, almost every coast in the world has upwelling events, but they're they brief and they're not as persistent. But the thing here is that we get this high nutrient water coming right up onto the shelf, and that's the importance of that spring transition. In an El Nino year, you might have an upwelling wind, but it's upwelling warm, low-nutrient water, so it's not any good. But it takes about a day for the upwelling to start. Then it might blow for a few days, maybe even a week is okay. If it blows much longer than that, then everything's been blown off the shelf and it's way gone far out to sea, and that's no good either. In fact, there are probably in, in on the coast of Namib- Namibia is a good example. It almost never stops blowing. It just blows incessantly. And the uh, there is not a lot of, of uh, marine life on the shelf because it's all blown away. It's quite fascinating.
0: Hmm. So it takes a couple of days for that to get going. And would you say here on the west coast that um, the peak upwelling is really happening north of us, Point Arena area, and then it drifts down during that lac- relaxation time that, down the coast this way?
1: That's... Uh, um That's the way we're seeing it, although not so much doing relaxation, but so the spatial pattern um, is of one of upwelling centers, and Point Arena is probably the king, or definitely one of the princes. Um, Cape Mendocino would be another one. As you get further south, Point Sur, um, Ananueva, which is just uh, north of Santa Cruz, is perhaps a slightly smaller one. And in all of these upwelling systems, whether you're in southern Africa or South America, you have the same these these sort of cores, almost fountains of upwelling. The thing about Point Arena that's really neat is that it it just keeps going, even when the wind stops for a while, um, due to the interaction of currents and 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 the and the bottom and so on. Point Arena upwelling really just keeps going, and then as the water comes up there, it might come up elsewhere as well, but it comes up most strongly there. It then flows south, so um, upwelling causes very strong southward currents. In actual fact, the, m- the currents are stronger along the coast than, than offshore. Oh. Um, and so water that comes up to the surface of Point Arena, maybe five days later will be down at Point Reyes and crossing over Cordell Bank, which is, so, as, as you know, this is something we're trying to understand better, that Point Rays, uh, Point Arena is the source of upwelled water. Five days later, it comes over Cordell Bank. It's now full of phytoplankton of these drifting plants. Which are then the food supply to the bank. So right. maybe the bank is really, you put it in the right place, Jennifer, I think.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I'm trying.
1: <laughs> and uh, But then when things relax um, out there over the outer shelf, far, a, a certain distance offshore, things tend to go south. But near shore, around um, from Point Reyes up to Bodega, we tend to see strong northward flow of warm water. We'll see San Francisco Bay water coming up past. Bodega, and even up to up as far as Point Arena, very seldom, but sometimes it'll do that. Wow!
0: For those just tuning in, this is a little late. This is Ocean Currents, and uh, my name is Jennifer Stock. I'm talking with Dr. John Largier from the Bodega Marine Lab and oceanographer, and we're talking about upwelling and productive systems here off the coast. So. Um, do you think that the shape and the contours, I mean, I've heard this definitely around seamounts and whatnot, but does the shape and the contours of the seafloor really aid in the productivity levels? Is there a specific contour of a point arena that really accelerates and keeps that upwelling going?
1: Yes, definitely. Um, and in both the examples you're talking about, the one is seamounts in general. So outside of upwelling areas, if you find an isolated seamount, it can be pretty important uh, in a slightly different way. but. Even within an upwelling system, um, you'll find at the headlands that the upwelling is, the headland being the the Cape or the promontory, can't even say that word, um, you'll find that the upwelling is is emphasized, exaggerated, enhanced there. The Point Arena, it happens for two reasons. The one is they're they're quite high coastal mountains or coastal hills, and you get an acceleration of the wind around Point Arena and just south of it. much stronger winds there than, than almost anywhere else on the coast between Point Arena and probably Bodega, but particularly up towards Point Arena. And then in addition to that, you have the uh, the submarine, the under, undersea topography, which also creates a, a headland or a cape, and that makes the current speed up and, and enhances the upwelling. Same thing, as I say, down at Point Sur up at Cape Mendocino. Cape Blanco is another one further north in Oregon.
0: And then it comes down the coast, and then there's a big transition area um, between, it seems like the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary and Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary at Point Conception. What's going on there to the California current that's pulsing down the coast, and then it hits Point Conception, and what's right. going on down there?
1: Well, this is, this is great, it, because you're um, describing the way I see all these systems. We started off talking about how things change in time, that is these rhythms Year to year, or season to season, or day to day, um, and then in space is the same idea that these patterns, large-scale patterns, we talked about the four primary upwelling regions, you know, pattern. I mean, big areas a thousand miles and more that are, that are long, and then we've been talking about smaller scale patterns, point arena to point raise, a hundred miles perhaps, and and now we're talking about something in between where at the the winds that howled on the coast. Um, remain alongside the coast down to Point Conception and then they tend to separate from the coast so the whole what we call the Southern California bite, from Point Conception, or let's say Santa Barbara down to San Diego as you know the winds don't blow as hard there, well they're blowing but they're further offshore and so that whole Southern California area I always say that it's, uh, that, it's that it's upwelling or the lack of it that gives the real estate so much value there because the water's warmer, the uh, winds are weaker, all all of that. And then these winds actually come back to the coast again, um, somewhere really around the border. Um, By the time you get down to Ensenada in uh, northern Baja, um, the winds are quite strong again. If you go down on the coast of Baja, it will be a little bit like Bodega. It will be windy and cold (laughs) and misty, quite uh, Quite strange, actually.
0: Is there a cur- current that's coming up from the south that is mixing into that California current, into that bite there? Because pictures that I've seen of sea surface temperatures and chlorophyll, there's just these incredible swirls going on of different colors.
1: Yeah, there's definitely um, counter currents, uh, quite a variety of them. So we talked about one of them up in up in, uh, in the Bodega region, coming from Point Reyes up when the winds relax. Um, but in the Southern California Bight, between Point Conception, between Santa Barbara and, and San Diego, there's quite a strong uh, countercurrent. current, in particular in the Santa Barbara Channel, as you say, there's swirls you see in satellite imagery, warmer water coming up north past Santa Barbara and then crashing into the cold water and swirling around the Channel Islands. So You find the outer Channel Islands are um, cold and more sort of upwelling-like in their ocean sense. Inner Channel Islands are warm and more, you know, temperate. Um, but there are other counter currents. The one that we don't see is perhaps the most important. It's an undercurrent, and it flows along the edge of the continental shelf. So, you know, the continental shelf is this big platform, if you like, down as you as go offshore. The depths drop down to 100, 200 meters. That extends quite far offshore, around, around here, Point Reyes, Bodega area. It's maybe 50 miles offshore. And then you drop off. That's the edge of the shelf, and that drops down a 1,000 meters down into the abyss, even more than that. Um, Along the edge of that continental shelf, there's a current only about 100 meters down, but then it extends from 100 maybe to 300 meters. Big, strong current going northward the whole way up the coast of California, and that brings very important um, nutrients, but also other materials.
0: Wow. Um, so much going on, and so much more than meets the eye. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: when I, I used to live on Catalina Island, and you know, the diving Lucky. at Catalina was so different than the Northern Channel Islands. It really was a testament to that Catalina is a little bit in those warmer waters, mm-hmm. and the Northern Channel Islands are much colder water, different, more rockfish for sure. We saw um, different hydro corals and cup corals, a lot of cold water, rocky reef species where. Down in the Catalina area, I saw a lot more Garibaldi and, and kelp forest-like areas.
1: Right. We're trying to we're trying to um, not only understand better, but sort of map out better what I might call the, the, uh, the water habitat or the pelagic habitat. You know, when we think of habitat in the ocean, we think about, is it rocky or sandy? Is it shallow or deep? But there's some areas which are more characterized by cold water and, and high nutrients than others by warmer water or um, unfortunately some areas are characterized by pollutants but there there are different zones of this coastal ocean. So for example I have a graduate student working with me on on the Channel Islands trying to understand the different distribution as you're talking about the different fish and the different um, kelp and the different invertebrates that live there to try and understand that distribution in terms of the oceanography. The one end is cold and subject to too high nutrient water and the other is getting totally different water only 10 miles away from each other
0: it's amazing well it's just about six o'clock we need to take a short break john but when we come back i'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the technology and um, how we are mapping out the the water since it's so hard to see and there are some amazing tools in place so please stay on the line for a few moments we're just going to take a short break And John, we were just talking about uh, sort of mapping out these areas of the ocean, and I just one thing that came to my mind was the idea about these fronts of water and what happens when two different masses of water meet, what are some of the things that happen along those areas that are defined as fronts
1: the um, well first of all, when two different groups of water meet two different packages of water you um Typically one of the waters is a little bit denser, a little heavier than the other, which might be a little bit lighter. And so what tends to happen is the one goes underneath the other, and in that subduction or in that plunging underneath, um, the surface waters come together and form a convergence line, which is often why when you're out on the ocean, you will see a foam line uh, where two different water masses meet. The so one side might be a bit bluer than the other, but often there's a foam line there. Typically, you'll find this at the edge of a, um, most strongly at the edge of a river plume, for example, flowing into the ocean or the, where the, the tide flows out from San Francisco Bay out of Bolinas Lagoon. But you'll also find that, for example, at Point Reyes, where the water's flowing south from the north coast and then interacting or meeting the water that's warmer, caught in Drake's Bay area. So this bringing together at the surface brings a lot of food and particles and uh, together, and then the fish start feeding on that and then the birds start feeding on the fish. And you create this whole little, I don't want to call it ecosystems, the wrong word, but this whole little, um system, you know, it, it will only be transient, but it's a place where things, it's like the dining room table where things come together for a while mm-hmm. and have a meal and then and then disperse again until until they find some other front.
0: Right. I've seen that a lot, being out of the Point Reyes Lighthouse, occasionally you look out and you can definitely see these fronts of water where you'll see little pieces, pieces of debris and, and that foam and, and different birds feeding on there. It's an amazing little ecosystem. And even <laughs> whales
1: sometimes, you- don't you? And cruel swarms and... It can have so much happening on those on those interfaces.
0: Wonderful. So I want to hear a little bit about some of the technology. We use so many different tools that we're mapping all this. It's very easy to just say all this, but obviously there's been a lot of work and research and modeling put together to understand just the basics. Uh, what are some of the tools that you're using to understand these currents and, and fronts and, and movements of water?
1: So the um, probably one of the one of the first technological developments in, you know, in modern uh, times that gave us a real insight was uh, were satellites, where, where they look down on the ocean and get a much bigger view of the ocean than we can. And um, in particular, they um, sample the, radi- the, the, the radiation, for example, the surface temperature will emit radiation more from where it's warmer and less from where it's colder. So a satellite up and way up there in space will get this picture of cold and warm water and so you'll see the swirling of water which you described earlier and i think probably many people around here have seen those satellite images and then after that the satellite imagery started looking at ocean color and for example where you get phytoplankton um the water will be greener than where you don't get it and you see the same swirling patches but now you're starting to get an idea of where there's food and productivity and where there isn't so that really started us thinking about the ocean in different ways. This, these ideas of upwelling centers I was talking about, kind of river plumes and of, I didn't use the word earlier, upwelling shadows in the bays of Monterey Bay and Drake's Bay and even up in Shelter Cove uh, north of Fort Bragg, um, you'll get these, these upwelling shadows or, or um, sort of quieter areas. So we see that from satellites. Um, but it doesn't tell us too much about how the water is moving or why it's like that. A whole slew of different technology but the most recent and exciting one is the high frequency radar system that the state is investing in and uh, working with a number of us at the different um, marine research groups along the coast from the whole way from san diego in actual fact even collaborating with some people in mexico and the whole way up to oregon and collaborating with people in oregon and this is a system very low power uh radio waves that go out about most of the systems we're using are going out about 40 kilometers, say maybe 30 miles, and bouncing off the surface of the ocean and through a mixture of Bragg scattering, if you, if people know what that is, and Doppler shifting, we get an idea of how fast the currents are moving on the surface of the ocean. So we can, um, we now have systems set up which, from uh, Gerstel Cove, or um, halfway up to Arena and then down past Bodega, San Francisco, a little bit into San Francisco Bay, down to beyond Monterey Bay. And similarly in Southern California, our colleagues have it from Point Conception. I think they have it set up now the whole way down to the border and the rest of the state is getting filled in. So you will, you can see um, every hour really a map of surface currents. So now we not only understanding what's going on, but in real time we can start giving some really useful information on um, Um, both natural pulsing of the ocean as well as river plumes that might be carrying foreign material or maybe oil spills or search and rescue if if there was an accident and somebody was um, lost overboard where they might be going. So this system is just coming up now. It's really pretty exciting operationally and scientifically.
0: Seems like a really important tool for tracking um, oil if there was an oil spill and being able to model where is it going to move first. So... Response can get on the ground and and be ready for that, or or respond to it wherever it is.
1: Very much so. We interacted with um, different agencies in NOAA and different uh, local and state agencies, and I think uh, in the sanctuary. Well, I know the sanctuaries were involved as well. Last uh, last August, the Safe Seas exercise, right. where we we're, we're trying to see how could this information be used um, to improve oil spill. Uh, Responses. It takes a while to get it all set up so it's ready to go when, when. Unfortunately, I'm saying when. Maybe I should say if there is an there is another oil spill around here.
0: Right. This is also useful information too. A couple years ago, wasn't it? With the, um, there was a proposal to dump uh, sewage from Santa Rosa off of Bodega, and I believe this modeling was presented to the board. To show them what would happen to that sewage if it if indeed they did dump it,
1: yeah, so that was the, um, prior to me getting up here, and I believe the plan um, or the consideration was to discharge into Stero americano, which would then flow out into bodega Bay and then be carried away by the ocean currents, and where would it go so it'd be very useful for that, and it has been used um, in Southern California um, for looking at ocean outfall issues and uh, probably we might do some here as well but in the whole the ocean outfalls of course discharge at depth and it doesn't get up to the surface which Mm -hmm. is giving you surface current so this is very good for river plumes which go out on the surface
0: yeah especially since we'll be starting to learn more about um, some of the contents of the river plumes just with um, monitoring more water quality offshore because we are in partnership, Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary and Bodega Marine Lab. We're putting a buoy in, hopefully, this year at Cordell Bank. And you've been very instrumental in making this happen, John. What are some of the instruments that are going to be on this buoy that are going to help some of this science move along?
1: Right. This, yeah, this gets back to um, how we talked about Cordell Bank maybe being a critical location in the ocean. Um, so that in itself is a good reason to have a mooring there but then, or a buoy the second reason is that we really want to understand that environment and why it's so special on the bank um that maybe it's just in a perfect place to receive a ready supply of food so the probably there's the three key things that we would be measuring there the one is what are the currents over the bank? is the water normally coming to the bank from the north or the south or the east or west, and this um high frequency radar tells us that the surface that is coming. Um, coming from the north, coming from Point Arena. And uh, what we now, this mooring on the bank, there will be a buoy on the surface, and then it will be tethered uh, in place with an anchor. And then there's a, a profiling current meter that acoustically measures the currents right through the water column from the seabed up to the surface. And often, as I mentioned earlier, we might have northward currents down at depth and southward currents at the surface. So that's the one very important thing we, we will measure, and that tells us where things are coming to from the bank. The second thing is we'll be measuring just simple temperature and salinity of the water. And that tells you something about it. Upworld waters, as you know, co- are cold, but they also the salinity, the salt content, is a little higher. So if we measure that, we know the origins of the water, mm. even if it's warmed up, if it's a high salt content, a high salinity, then we know it was upworld water and it did used to have a lot of nutrients in it. And then the third uh, important thing is um, if you measure fluorescence in a certain wave um, wave band or wavelength, it's a very good estimate of how much phytoplankton is in the water because it's actually an estimate of how much chlorophyll, which is one of the, which is, that, you know, is the pigment, and that gives you an idea of how much phytoplankton is. Um, it's... Uh, so when there's a bloom or when there's a lot of phytoplankton around, you will get the high fluorescence values. So we'll be able to then really have a monitoring, you know, hour by hour of the conditions over the bank. Um, and this is excellent because it it then becomes a partner with a, with a similar system that we have at the marine Labor- at Bodega Marine Laboratory, uh, but right near the shoreline, uh, where we will see where we see quite different conditions near the coast as to out at the edge of the continental shelf.
0: Sounds really exciting to be able to compare those two and and be able to learn a whole lot more about that offshore ecosystem.
1: It's I think it's invaluable, particularly when it's put together with monthly trips or even more often, but regular monthly trips that <clears throat> that the sanctuary conducts, both to uh, again measure temperature and salinity of the water, but also um, survey uh, mammals and birds and. It's linking those two together that's important. And then almost every day we get a good satellite image of the region. And then every hour we have the surface current from the radar. So all in all, um, we're getting we're going to have a very good picture of this area. And not only for Cordell Bank, but this is, if you like, the upstream end of, of the Gulf of Farallon This is the water that flows south into the Gulf of the Farallon past the islands, and then maybe getting pulled into Drake's Bay and everywhere else. So we're really trying to understand this area where, actually just briefly, if you look at satellite imagery at the ocean color, where the green water, there's a region from about Bodega down to Monterey, shines out like a bright green light if you look at average satellite images. Um, So it really is the most productive part of the coastline, at least from south of Point Conception up to, you know, um, probably up to, uh, de Fuca. It's a really very, very important place, and we're starting to unravel the oceanography quite nicely.
0: It's wonderful, and that's really why these National Marine Sanctuaries were established was because of that incredible productivity. Uh, one thing I want to mention is um, the buoy is going to help complement a lot of the information. As you mentioned, the Cordell Bank Sanctuary has a Um, ocean monitoring program that goes out monthly, and the observers are watching for seabirds and mammals, and one thing they saw this past year was that a bird that's usually fairly common out there, the Cassin's auklets, which breed on the Farallons, were pretty much very, very low numbers, and corresponding data with the Gulf of the Farallons beach watch surveys, the Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuary does these beach watch surveys, their Cassin's auklets um, numbers on the beaches, meaning dead birds, was high, so it was really interesting that those two of course correlated so closely and the buoy I think is going to help fill in a lot of information for these stories that are happening year to year
1: definitely we don't have a, <clears throat> a good enough idea of what is normal in inverted commas because every year is different but what is you know truly anomalous, what is very unusual and as we're the into a time of changing climate um, you know it's it's happening and there are good indications of it happening but what does it mean for our region. What does it mean for the California current? What does it mean for upwelling and and fisheries? And, you know, whatever you want to talk about in the whales in this region. So we need to get a much better idea of what is normal, how it works, so we can anticipate the changes that are going to come. Mm -hmm. Um, I I maybe should mention to people that um, there are a number of web pages where you can get um, interesting oceanographic data.
0: Oh, yeah. Please um, do share those. That'd be great.
1: Yeah. Well, the, the um, I'll give. i just tell you our one, and from that you should be able to link to quite a variety of others um, because I don't want to tell you a bunch of them. Our part of this ocean observing system we call BOON, the Bodega Ocean Observing Net, uh, Node, the B-O-O-N. So you could just Google B-O-O-N, and it'll come up. But the, the URL is B-M-L, as in Bodega Marine Lab. .ucdavis.edu/boon, and from there you can see some of the some of the uh, data we're collecting. Some of it is not showing up uh, right now, but uh, we'll we'll soon. And from there, you should be able to link across to a whole variety of other sources of data as well.
0: And there's also the um National Data Buoy Center, N D B C exactly dot dot gov where you can click on regions to see buoys all around the country and um, hopefully up and coming in the near future, we'll be adding number 46095, the Cordell Bank buoy, to that um, when that is able to get out there. So if anyone's interested in, in tracking information real-time, live, seeing what the sea conditions are at. A lot of fishermen do this regularly. This is part of their daily, probably on the hour type of practice, is checking the weather and, and the the winds. And I know last this past week it was just crazy. It would be high, then low, and then come up again. The winds, it was kind of unpredictable. So that's ndbc.noaa.gov. John, are there any last things you want to share about this upwelling system and the productivity here on the coast?
1: Well, it's a, it is a fascinating time to be to be studying it. There is, um, we're getting so many different views of it, and for me, what is most uh, rewarding is to <clears throat> um, understand the movement of water and how it links in with what. We, as ocean people, know about the ocean. I mean we have this this experience of it, and we and you know the seasons we we know it, but can we explain it and if we can explain it, then we can deal better with the changes that that are coming uh but both through climate change but also through our own direct human actions. you know we influence the ocean one in a global sense by changing climate but also in a local sense by things that we discharge into the ocean by things we take from the ocean and um and we can understand more of what we're doing. So I like, I like to practice environmental oceanography to focus on those environmental issues. What are the challenges to living sustainably on this planet? And then what can oceanography tell us about how to address those issues and be better stewards? So that's really what excites me. And I'm um, happily to hear from anybody who should look at our, at our website or if they have ideas or questions um, the more interactions uh, with people who love the ocean the better
0: wonderful do you want to share any contact information
1: well probably um, the my email is is, uh, jelagier at ucdavis dot edu
0: and that's l-a-r-g-i-e-r exactly at ucdavis dot edu and I'm sure through the Boone website too people can get you
1: Um, yes I think they can although I'm not sure exactly who we have there as a contact person so if you do the the J-L-A-R-G-I-E-R at UC Davis. You'll get directly to me.
0: Fantastic. Well, John, thank you so much for sharing some time with us, really painting the picture of all the movement of water and, and why this place is so productive off the coastline here. It's really valuable. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Jennifer. It's a pleasure and joy talking with you.
0: Hopefully we'll be, have you on again sometime, talk a little bit more about some of the larval um, settlement. I'm really interested in hearing a little bit more about that sure. in regards to the marine protected areas that are
1: and the, and, and the bays and estuaries,
0: oh, fascinating we'll to, places. Well, we'll have to have a show on bays and estuaries, <laughs> for sure. I'll jump into the bays and the, and the estuaries.
1: <laughs> that's right. I know that they're warmer.
0: I know. And that's actually good. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Take care.
1: Bye-bye.
0: Well, it's really exciting to hear just a little bit more about what are the forces affecting us here on the coast. The typical variability of the climate clearly has direct connections to the marine food web, the weather, it affects everyone and everything. Everything is connected and it's important to continue monitoring to support the research in this field to help the scientists and managers cope with and plan for impacts on the the ocean and the environment with with global climate change on the horizon here. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, originally broadcast live on KWMR, community radio station of West Marin in California. You can find us on the web at kwmr.org. For more information about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary and the National Marine Sanctuary program, visit us on the web at sanctuaries.noaa.gov. Opinions expressed on the show may or may not be the same as Noah's. The show is meant to be educational in nature.